Well, if you haven't already, you can flip to Psalm 119, and we will be in the 19th section, which is verses 45 through, uh, excuse me, verses 145 through 152, the Kof letter or section of uh, Psalm 119. And I'll start off with a few introductory comments, and I'll read. And uh, we will we'll go about our time in God's Word. A newborn baby cries uh, as soon as he's out of the womb, showing his dependence upon his mother for everything, right? Well, prayer is the first expression of faith on the part of God's adopted children. Primarily, we cry out in prayer, what? Thank you. Thank you. So prayer is our spirit-provoked response to the holiness, to the love, to the mercy, and to the grace of God. The goal, uh, as God has intended it, the goal of the preaching of the word and of the sacraments is to create, uh, strengthen, and sustain faith so that we would come boldly to the throne of grace without fear. And we're all called to approach the throne of grace. We're all called to receive grace in our time of need. And, and saints, it's important that we realize that we are called to pray. That we need to pray. Uh, and our text today teaches us a lot about prayer. But primarily, I want us to understand how prayer is connected to God's Word. Prayer is this link uh, between the grace that we need from God... And our discipleship, our sanctification, our imitating Christ, our growing in the faith. Prayer is this link. And here in uh, this 19th section of Psalm 119, the psalmist is crying out to God. And he's crying out in, in much prayer and much meditation in the Word of God. And it's important that we note this, again, that there is much prayer and meditation in these eight verses being described in all of it is stirred up and all of it is provoked by the hope of God's Word. By the hope of God's Word. And so our plan today is to just walk through these eight verses verse by verse. And I have about four meditations along the way. And the fourth one will be uh, our, our closing time together. So um, without any further ado, let's put our eyes on the first verse. Uh, verse 145. Excuse me, I need to read the text for us. This is the infallible, perfect, unchangeable Word of God. With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you. Save me that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. And I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O oh Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O oh Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. We praise God for His Word. And let's put our eyes on the first verse there. 
Uh, we'll, we'll really just look at the first three verses. I, I cry with my whole heart. I call to you, save me. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. So I mean, just in these three verses, we see this, this earnest, this heartfelt cry to God. And it's just this persistence that we see through, through the whole psalm, right? Before morning and then uh, verse 148, in the watches of the night. He is, he's praying persistent. It kind of reminds me of Luke 18 when, God is, uh, when Christ is given the, uh, an illustration with a parable of the persistent widow. And he's talking about the kingdom of God and how it will come. And he uses this illustration to pray for God's will knowing that he is faithful to complete it. God's kingdom will come. And so he gives this illustration of this widow who comes to this unjust judge who doesn't fear God and he doesn't love human beings. And she's just persistent, begging for justice. And he says, no, no. And eventually he just gives in because he's tired of her begging. And he says, how much more God, who has promised good, will it come to those who ask? When we're asking the kingdom of God to come, he's saying, stay persistent because it will happen. That's what he's saying. Or how about Jacob wrestling with God? And, and he wrestles with God through the night and he won't let go, right? Unless what? Until you bless me, I won't let go. Or even in James 5, he uses the illustration of Elijah praying for rain. He prays and prays and prays and the rain comes. But here's the important thing to notice in all those illustrations I give of this heartfelt prayer. Is that they all pray for what? They all pray for the will of God. For Jacob, he knows that God has, has blessed Israel. He's promised to Abraham, to Isaac, right? That he will bless them and they will be a blessing to the nation. So he's clinging to God. Bless me. He knows that God has promised to do it. For the, the illustration of the widow, he's promised the kingdom of God will come. Keep begging. It's going to happen. Or even for James 5, God told Elijah that he would send rain. So go up there and pray for it. He's praying for what God has promised to do. They're all praying for God's will to be done. And so, and, you know, just briefly before we move on, it's, a question could be asked, what are we praying for? What do we spend our time praying for? But looking specifically at verse 145, I cry with my whole heart. Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. Spurgeon quotes Thomas Brooks in his uh, commentary. and He says, God looks not to the elegance of your prayers to see how neat they are, nor yet at the geometry of your prayers to see how long they are, nor yet at the arithmetic of your prayers to see how many they are, nor yet at the music of your prayers, nor yet at the sweetness of your voice, nor yet at the logic of your prayers, but at the sincerity of your prayers, how hearty they are. And we're all thinking, but man, sometimes my heart is dry, and oftentimes I don't even know how to communicate God as I wish I did. But here's the thing. Prayer makes it to the heart of God. And here's why. It's not due to their length, their doctrine, the illustrious expressions we may use. It's not due to our fleshly ability. Prayers make it to the heart of God through hearts that have been transformed by grace. And our hearts that have been transformed by grace cries out to the living God for mercy and for love and for help. And that heart's prayer makes it to God. Not, not based upon your fleshly ability, right? But a heart that's been changed that says, God, help me, give me grace. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. 
And it's important that we realize that it's not based upon how pretty our prayers are. The Psalms, the Psalm, the book of the Psalms, they're full of lamentation. They're full of distress, of anger, of doubts, of frustrations, of questions, of confessions, of sin and the like. And the reason we pray is not because we know our hearts to be in this perfect place. The reason we pray is not because our hearts are perfect and ready to pray. The reason we pray is because we know our hearts are still full of so much corruption. So we go to God asking for grace. And notice this wholehearted prayer. Who is it going to? Who is this wholehearted prayer for help going to? God. The only one who can help. The only one who can help. Where else would we go with our needs for grace and for hope? For the ability to be saved so that we might observe his testimonies. We don't do that well and so where would we go to ask for help? Only one place. God in Christ Jesus. And so he says, answer me. Give, give, give attention to me, God. He's asking for this, this the, the, the ear of a friend. Just listen to me. And, and just hear me, God. Answer it. It's kind of like a, a doctor listening to a patient, right? As the patient tells them, there's, you know, this, this drawn out story of the pain they've been through or the symptoms that they're going through. And the doctor sympathetically sits there and listens. You know, here's the story. To kind of address the problem. He's asking God for the ear of a friend towards his complaint. Help me. God, help me. And God would have pity on him. You know, in this section is, is this desire, right? We see this crying out, this huge desire. And what is he crying out for? We see it in verse 26. Is 45 and, and um, 145 and 146 is a repetition in Hebrew poetry. With my whole heart I cry out, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. Save me that I may observe your testimonies. So he's praying fiercely. And what is he praying for? Not that he would live easier, but that he would live better. God, save me. Not that I might have comfort and ease, but that I might live better. That I might love you. He doesn't say this in so many words, but I think Spurgeon makes a great point. It's like when, when we're desperate crying out for help, we don't use a lot of words. Help me. Save me. I don't know. Help. You know, it's quick and, and we mean a whole lot. I don't know what to communicate. And he's like, save me. I might keep your testimony. Save me from the men that come from my life, from the enemies that pursue me. Save me from the temptations that come before me and from within me. Save me from the sin that accuses me. Save me. I mean, honestly, there's a, there's a prayer. Not that he might be saved so that he might have comfort or so that he might sin with impunity. He's actually saying, save me from sin altogether. That I might love you, God. That I might observe your testimonies. That I might do what's good and what's right. And so this I'm going to take a, a moment before we move on uh, to offer a short meditation. So this is our first meditation. And this is on sanctification or discipleship, if you will. Our strength and ability for obedience cannot, thankfully, it cannot and does not come from ourselves. 
Let me make an argument for us. We were dead in our sins. And uh, our fleshly nature was completely dead, only wanting evil. Our heart had proclivities towards evil, not towards good. And we need a new nature, right? All of our merits have earned God's punishment, not His pleasure. So we have really no hope at all from the, from the jump, from the beginning, no hope. So we need a new nature. And we have received a new nature, right? We had a dead heart with proclivities toward evil. It bends in our frame. But now we have a new heart which does yearn after God. And we have a new frame, a new holy frame. You know, the, the law is no longer outside of us, right? Condemning us. The law has actually been written on the new hearts that we've been given, that we might live it out, that we imperfectly but really obey the will of God. And just like we received this original sin by being born under Adam, the same way we receive from Jesus eternal life, a new holy frame and a new nature by union with Him by faith. And this is what union with Christ means, brothers and sisters. Like a branch receives all it needs from the vine. The vine produces all the virtue that the branch needs to grow and to produce fruit. Or how about a wife who brings forth fruit because of her conjugal union with her husband? Or how about stones being built on a holy temple? They're being built into a holy temple because they're built upon the foundation on the chief cornerstone. And in all these illustrations, what I'm trying to show is that the result is always because of something. The result happens because of something. Sanctification, our walking out of this new holy nature, our obedience, our life in Christ is because of our union with Him. We receive, uh, just like the, the supper points, the supper does for us. Like We receive nourishing and virtue from the bread that we eat, from the wine that we drink, right? And it's used to, uh, to resemble that just as you receive it, it nourishes you. You receive it, it nourishes you. We receive Christ and all of the benefits of Christ are ours. We receive it. The work of Christ, though, here's why I make that argument. Because we sometimes think we've been saved, we've been to united to Christ, and now it's up to us to walk out and to form some holy nature in ourselves. Listen, Jesus lived, he died, and he resurrected so that we might receive a holy nature which has been prepared for us to walk in. We receive Christ's nature. He lived perfectly and He resurrected so that we might receive the nature that He lived for. We receive a holy nature, one that's been prepared. It's Christ's. That's what union with Christ means, saints. We receive it. Walter Marshall, he's an early Puritan, writes about this very topic. In His incarnation, in His death, and in his resurrection, these were the causes of all holiness that ever was or ever shall be given to man from the fall of Adam to the end of the world. There's only one true holy nature that's been lived. That's Christ Jesus. And in union with him, it's ours. It's ours. That's your nature, saints. That's your nature, saints. And because of that, we pray. 
that we would walk not according to our flesh, this dead soul that, I mean, this dead flesh that we still carry around, this old heart that's still full of the old man. What do we pray? We pray that we would not walk according to the flesh. We'd walk according to the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the nature of Jesus. That's ours by union with Him through faith. We pray that we wouldn't gratify these fleshly desires. We pray that the fruit of love and holiness would be walked out because of our union with Jesus. This is our life. And this is the foundation of sanctification. And so that's kind of the end of our brief meditation on sanctification or discipleship. And we move on here to verse uh, 147. So he cries out to God for what? Right? A deliverance from sin. Not to live easy, but to live better. But then he says, verse 147, I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I hope in your words. So he was up before the sun. Before the sun. Right? And just, it, it's this, this, these eight verses are expressing just this ongoing cry. He cried to God. And uh, he's crying out to the Lord. And, and note what he says. I cry for help, but I hope in your words. It could be rendered, I anticipate what you will do. I wait for your words. I hope for your words to give me life. I hope for you. I'm wait I cry out to you and I'm hoping for you to give me life. Give me life is, is what he's saying here. Uh, Spurgeon again uh, makes a great point. Hope strengthens us in prayer. Who's going to pray if they have no hope that God would hear them or answer them? And the psalmist's hope is fixed upon what? I hope in your words. I hope in your words. Because it's not only uh, just what God has done, but what He said He will do. And God's word is the only sure and steady anchor because God is ultimate. He is true. He is good. He is faithful. And He's never run back on any of His promises. He's never changed on what He's ever said. So early in the morning, the psalmist is up, stirring himself up with what? The hope of what God has said. Stirring himself up with the hope of what God has said. The psalmist wants things which he has no ability to produce in himself. So where does he go? He goes to God. And where is his hope as he goes to God? In what God has said. What God has revealed. And so we pray, saints... Because we need things that we have no ability in producing for ourselves. We pray because our hearts are still so corrupt. We lack so much love for God and each other. And we lack so much understanding and maturity still. And, and sometimes, and maybe often, we do feel despondent. We feel apathetic. We feel slothful. But we don't hope in our feelings for reason to pray or reason to feel like God would hear us. If we indulge in that kind of despondency, if we indulge our feelings, and we hope for us to feel the right way as assurance that God hears us and will answer our prayers, it is going to lead to despair. We're already in despair, and then we fall into that trap. God is true. His promises remain. He is faithful. So we pray. So we pray. Because we don't feel the right ways. See, God is never despondent. He's never slothful towards us. 
He's not looking at our lack of good feeling or strength and saying, I'm not going to answer this one. He knows that we are coming to him because we are those things. God, save me. Save me. I will keep your statutes. Save me that I may observe your testimonies, that I may live better. And I hope for your, your word will give me life. You will be faithful. You know, Jesus lived and died for you. And you have forgiveness and you have righteousness and you have a spirit inside of us. We just talked about this. And so what do we do? We pray. We pray all those things we just talked about. Save me because my heart feels empty. Save me because I don't love you enough. I want to love you more. I need to love you more. I need to love my neighbors. Pray that I would live out of my union with Jesus, not out of my feelings, not out of my circumstances. And so let's take a moment again and meditate here. Meditation number two on prayer. What do we pray? What do we pray? This isn't exhaustive, but I have two points and some encourages, an encouragement for us. Number one, we pray the Father's will. We pray the Father's will. But where is His will revealed? In His Scripture. So we pray with an open Bible. 1 John 5, 14 and 15, it says that this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. There's a promise. Ask according to His will and He hears. God hears you when you pray according to His will. This is a prayer right here that He hears. God, save me that I might live better. He hears us this morning praying this in our hearts as I preach this. And we all are like, yes and amen. Save us, God. Attend to our souls that we might live better. But verse 15, And we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, and we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. I mean, literally there's a promise that if we ask according to God's will, He, he promises that He hears you and He will do it. So the question is, what do we pray? Right? We pray the Father's will. Open your Bibles. See what God is revealing about himself. Pray according to that. God, I know you're faithful. Give me faith to live according to your faithfulness, not according to my feelings. God, I know that this is who you are. So make me praise you. Make me know you. These are prayers he hears. Uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments. Just, just pray the Ten Commandments. God, I pray that I would be a person who's truthful. Who's never looking for the angle to make myself look better. Even if it means not telling the truth and not telling a lie. But, you know, in that immediate... We're praying the, the Ten Commandments. Or pray the Lord's Prayer, right? Father, we pray that you'd make your name holy to us. Hallowed be your name. Make your name holy to us and in us, in this congregation. I pray this for you guys all the time. That your will would be done. It's going to come. You've promised us. But we pray that as it's come into our hearts and our lives and our homes and our church, that it would come all the more. That your kingdom would be established all the more in our hearts. I mean, his kingdom being established is essentially save us so that we might keep your commandments. Right? I mean, it is that we would be like Christ because of what he's done for us. Uh, that his will would be done. God, continue to provide for our needs. Everything we need to honor you and to serve our neighbor. He hears these prayers. He's promised to answer them. And, and most importantly, have mercy on my sins. Have mercy on my sins. He hears that. He answers that. That have mercy on my sins as I have mercy on others. 
not according to what they've done, but according to who you are. Have mercy on me as I will have mercy on others. And then finishing up the Lord's Prayer since we're going through it, I guess. Uh, guard and preserve me from temptation. Guard and preserve me from temptation, O God. And then finally cause me to live from the hope that you will finally deliver me from sin. Cause me to live out of that. The hope that you will deliver me from sin. Here's another example here. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Pray, God, sanctify me. God, sanctify me. He hears, He answers. And we pray things like this all the time. Uh, trying to catechize you guys. Father, cause us to trust in Jesus alone. Give us faith. We pray these things all the time. Remove from us the shame and the guilt that we feel. Give us grace that we might live unto you. Have mercy on our sins. We pray these things all the time as the, the pastors here. Martin Luther, uh, in his large catechism, makes an excellent point uh, on the Lord's Prayer. He says, nothing is so necessary as that we should continually resort to the ear of God and call upon Him and pray to Him that He would give, preserve, and increase in us faith in the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments and that He would remove everything that's in our, ways that, in our way that opposes uh, us to them. It's like, God, give us faith. You know, give it, preserve it, increase it in us. Fulfill in us your law. And remove the hindrances in us that keep us from it. You know, it's like, good grief. Amen. Amen. So the first thing is to pray the Father's will. Pray with an open Bible. And the second thing is to pray understanding that it is spirit-aided communion with God. It is spirit-aided communion with God. And what I mean is that we all have this desire to pray more. Right? And we want to pray with better quality. And, and the thing is, we don't know what to say. And we often don't feel the right things. And we're just like... Uh, you know, like, God help, you know, we, we do that, that sort of thing. And we're distracted, right? And we know that we have this dry heart. And we're, and we're already full of shame and guilt because we don't feel the right ways. And we're going to a holy God who has given us hope, who's made us his children. And we're kind of like apathetic and dry and wish we felt better. And that's where we start. We haven't even said anything yet. Uh, suffice it to say, Romans eight twenty six, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. Uh, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so we offer uh, oftentimes puny, pathetic words. But uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a great point in his uh, book called The Living Water. He says, uh, which instead of me making this point, I'm going to let him make this point. We should start with confession. Not just of sin. But here's what he say. We must admit our inability to pray as we ought. And we come face to face with our tendency to try to pray on our own. We start with this recognition that prayer is a spiritual activity. That's where we start. It's not something we do. It's a spiritual activity. So it first and foremost starts with the fact that I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. But he goes on to say, uh, In the power of the flesh profits nothing at all. And we should feel our dryness and our difficulty and confess it to him. Confess to him our dullness, uh, our lifelessness, and our spiritual slowness and sluggishness. God, I'm all these things coming to you because I, I want to pray to you and I need to pray to you, but this is all I got. I'm sluggish. I'm lifeless. I'm, I'm slothful. I'm dry. I confess 
this ain't good. And, uh, and, we, and we begin, right? Praying, making our requests known to God. So I think number one, if I were to encourage you uh, in prayer, is to just start admitting these things. God, I, I don't pray as I ought. I don't know how. I feel all these ways. And I haven't even said a word, you know. Uh, and number two is to respond to every impulse to pray. Every impulse you have to pray, pray. Just pray. Offer up whatever it is. Just pray. It, it is. We're of the flesh. We're so weak. Just pray. It's good for you. Uh, your Father, His ear is towards you. Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Just just. Pray at every impulse. Let your request be made known to God. Pray. I mean, it, it really is childlike stuff. You know, just pray. We always feel this urge to, you know, we worry about everything. We worry, are they going to make it home safe? Is this going to happen? Is that going to go well? Is this going to... Lord, pray to make, them, they make it home safe. Just let your request be made known to God. You know, uh, pray at every impulse. And then number three, uh, which I've said this over and over, but as you pray with an open Bible, remember Christ. Remember Christ uh, and anticipate God's faithfulness. Christ is enough for righteousness and for forgiveness. God's ear is towards you. Uh, and even Christ's coming, His living, His dying, His resurrection, His ascension is evidence of God's faithfulness. And so as you pray with an open Bible and you're praying in many different ways that God's kingdom would come, the fact that Christ came, died, resurrected, and ascended is proof that God is faithful to make His kingdom come. And we're praying for sanctification, right? We're praying to continue on. We're praying for faith that we run the race well. So we, uh, yeah, we keep begging. Keep begging. So uh, it kind of ends our meditation on prayer. That we pray the Father's will. We pray understanding that it's spirit-aided spirit communion. And then as far as encouragement, it's to confess our dullness and dryness and our inability in ourselves. Uh, to respond to every impulse to pray. And to pray, remembering Christ and anticipating God's faithfulness. So that ends that meditation. And we're going to move on to verse 148. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night. That I may meditate on your promise. The night watches, right? There was three. According to Smith's Bible Dictionary, there were three watches. And they give uh, several scripture references. But essentially in, in, for the Hebrews, it was sunset, the 10 p.m. It was 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. and then 2 a.m. to sunrise. And so it, the psalmist has essentially set his alarm clock. Before the night watches change, he's up to meditate on the promises of God. To meditate on the promises of God. And so during this time, right, where people, is, people are resting and they're getting refreshment from just the pure exhaustion of being alive, much less working and raising a family and doing all these things, he's up to call to mind what God has done. Who God is. What He's promised. He's up to, to meditate, to think deeply upon the testimonies of God. To think deeply upon what God has revealed. That's what meditation is, right? To think deeply. Whether you can express everything that's going on or not, it's just to think deeply, especially on a certain topic. On a certain topic. So here, let's just say the promises of God. He's calling to mind and meditating on what God has promised. What that might mean. What, you know, he's calling to mind these things. So he's, 
he's up to think and to, and to pray, to meditate. And just for a second, I want to make a comment that uh, we should all... What, what this, this is not saying that we must be up all day and all night praying. If you did, it wouldn't hurt you. Okay? Let's get that straight. But this isn't just like, hey, we've got to do this. Every day, every night. We need sleep. Right? Rest is good. And there are times, though, that, yeah, maybe your conscience is beckoning you to, to, to get up and pray to God. To get up and think because you're, you're lost and you're, you're disordered and you're, you're in confusion. And you just need to just think and hard on what God has said and who He is. It's not bad. That's not a burden. But I'm afraid in just in general in our lives, we just don't slow down. We just won't just stop for a second just to even give ourselves a breath to think. To even think about what our souls are, are doing and thinking and feel. What has my mind been wrapped up with all day? Just to stop and think like, how, have you just been using people for your own advantage? Have you been mindful of anything that God might be doing, you know, in your coworkers at work or conversation you might need to have or just ways that, that you know, you don't realize that you're probably being selfish or mean or arrogant? And, I mean, these are just examples, but just to stop and slow down just to think about that, much less to give yourself time to think about heavenly realities, to just, to just stop. And I want to encourage us. You know, husbands, give your wives time for themselves. They can use it to go out on a walk and think. Or, you know, and wives, give your husbands time to, to think, to slow down. Take advantages of these times. Prioritize. We're going to prioritize things we care about. And, you know, prayer and meditation is this link between God's grace and our walking out the faith, discipleship, God's going to sanctify us. He knows what we need. We, more than we know what we need. And prayer is a lot. And prayer and meditation is, is really for us. You know, in some senses. And so I, I encourage us, prioritize that time to stop and to think. And here's the thing. We don't like to do that because we're full of shame and guilt. And this is why we show up here every day to have the mercies of Christ extolled to you, read over you, preached to you, and then come to the table to realize that you have received mercy from God. You've received grace from God. So in those moments when you slow down and the first thing you think is guilt and shame and you're overwhelmed by how much you're not this... Christ is enough. We'll, we'll continue talking about this, but uh, this, let's just talk about Jesus. He is the true singer of the Psalms, but even as we consider how this psalmist is up in the morning before the sun and he's in the watches of the night praying and meditating, Mark 135 about Jesus and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed before the sun rose and Luke 6 12 he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God because he had a zealous dependence on fellowship and love with the Father he meditated all day and all night because he is uh, Psalm 1, the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons and its leaf does not wither and all that he does prospers. Even uh, so something that we looked at in Psalm 119 a few weeks ago, Oh, how I love your law. 
Your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged. I hold back from every uh, evil way. He even says I hate every false way. This is who Jesus was. And so, and, and part of that was because he had a perfect fellowship with the Father. This perfect dependence on the Father. And all of that stuff that I just read condemns us because we are none of those things. We do not hate every false way. But Jesus is the yes and the amen to all of the old covenant. And therefore, he hated every false way. Therefore, he was up before the sun. Therefore, he was in prayer all night. Because he was the ultimate fulfillment of the next verse in our psalm today. 149. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. If one is going to pray and argue a reason that God should hear him, this is the opening argument and the only argument. The free and unmerited grace of God. Your steadfast love, O Lord. Why should God hear us, saints? He shouldn't. He shouldn't. We need everything. We have nothing to pay with. We're dead and we need life. We're blind. We need sight. We need illumination. We're dirty. We're vile. We need purification. We're poor and we're, we need riches. We're guilty and we, we need forgiveness. We lack faith. We need it. And in fact, the entire point of Israel, the entire point of the Old Covenant was that God was bringing forth the Messiah. And so let's think about this. Meditation number three on being heard according to God's steadfast love and justice. Being heard according to God's steadfast love and justice. And what I want to do is, is jump over as we think about Jesus and how he was perfect. Uh, and as we think about being heard according to God's steadfast love, I want to jump over to Hebrews 4. I think these will, will be on the screen. If not, you can certainly turn there. Hebrews 4, um, 14 through 16. Since... First, let's just read verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. There's promises here, right? Draw near with confidence to receive grace. Draw near to receive grace. With confidence draw near. But what is the basis of our confidence, saints? According to your steadfast love, okay? Uh, with confidence draw near. Okay, but how do I know this to be true? How do I know that you have steadfast love for me? How do I know that I should have confidence? Well, verse 14. Since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Jesus passed through the heavens. What is meant here is that he's ascended. So he was our sacrificial lamb. He incarnated and he shed his blood for our sins. And his blood washes away the curse and the guilt of all our sins. And he was resurrected. The high priest took his perfect sacrifice to the Father, to the temple made without hands. The Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And Jesus got up from the grave. And then he ascended. He ascended to heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. This is what it means that he passed through the heavens. He ascended and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? He's interceding for us. Where he is, we will be. And what he's like, we will also be like. Where he is and who he is. By faith we believe this and one day it will be sight. But here's another thing, verse 15. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands our weakness. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ's humanity. He was truly man, truly God. And of course his deity could not and did not sin. But his humanity was sinless. His humanity was sinless. But how was he tempted? Right, because James, uh, James chapter 1 says that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire which uh, gives birth to sin and then sin grows into death. So if, if Jesus was tempted inside of him, that would mean that he had sin in him. Well, Jesus had a human nature, not a sinful nature. He had desires, but he did not have sinful desires. Temptations came from without. For example, when Satan tempted him, and he did not sin. His sinlessness, saints, qualified him to be your sacrifice. You are full of sin. Jesus was not. And he, and he was not for you. So negatively, Jesus didn't sin. And positively, Jesus was eager to fulfill all of the Father's will. Which is why he's up before the Son praying, God help me. God help me. You know, up all night. Praying for wisdom. Praying for help. Because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? He laid down his power. And he made himself fully dependent on the Father for you. And because he was tempted, saints, we have a high priest who understands and sympathizes with us. And so what does he say? Because of this, pray. Because, because this is your Savior, because this is your high priest, pray. So what is our confidence to approach the throne of God boldly without fear? Jesus. Jesus is our confidence, saints. And so when we pray and we're guilty in our confessions and we lack faith, and we're weary in life. Our assurance is not in ourselves. But we, with confidence, approach the throne, not confident in ourselves. Confident in Jesus. Confident in Jesus. We, we go to the throne of grace, and we offer up these puny little phrases, save me, give me life, that I might live better. And although we're weak and although we lack any merit, he hears us because Jesus is not weak. Because Jesus has all the merit required. And because he is your mediator. Beloved, you have all that is required in Christ Jesus for the God of the universe to hear you. To hear your prayers. Going back to our text on uh, verse 149, hear my voice according to your steadfast love, according to your justice, according to your will. Give me life according to your will. And just remember, you know, Hebrews, going back to Hebrews now, it was written to saints who were trying to follow God, right? And he says, because Christ is all of this, draw near to the throne of God. Draw near to the throne of God and to the throne of grace and receive grace. Keep on praying. Keep on drawing near is really what, what, the, uh, the, trans, what the, the Greek is there. To keep on doing this. Let us then keep on drawing near to God. But what are we drawing near to, saints? Well, we know our confidence is Christ and we're going to God, but what are we drawing near to? Well, 
uh, I'll just read this for us. It's Hebrews 7.25. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This is talking about Jesus. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. We're drawing near to the enthroned Jesus Christ. Whose very enthronement means that mercy and grace covers you. We're drawing near to the throne of grace where Jesus sits. Steadfast love. Wisdom, mercy, grace. That's what we're drawing near to. And we're asking for help. Just for another example here. In James chapter 4, he's warning the saints against worldliness. They got all these desires coming from within them that's causing them to, to covet and literally to steal things, to hate people. To, I mean, it's just, it's a mess because of these desires. And, he's, and what does he say to them? He says, do you not know that God is jealous for you? Like he's jealous for you. And you're doing all this stuff. And then uh, verse 4 chapter 6. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Literally. I mean listen to this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire. You do not have. You murder. You covet. You cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You want to spend it on selfish gains, on your own passions. You're not praying the Father's will. You're praying whatever you want, whatever comes to your heart and mind. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. And he says, or do you suppose it's no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He yearns jealously for you, but he gives more grace. Therefore, therefore, God says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Boldly approach the throne of grace. The one who is jealous for your soul. The Christ who lived and died and ascended for you. Who is your confidence. Who will never fail. Who's always enough. I should end that there. Let's go back to verse 149. Just to finish this verse up. His steadfast love and, and His justice, right? These principles of justice that are founded upon God's Word, right? Where He promises mercy to the humble. And He promises judgment to the wicked. And so this psalmist is, is crying out to God, right? And he says, man, hear my voice according to your steadfast love, according to what you deem is good. Oh God, give me life. According to what you deem is good. And what we just went through is that God deemed it good to give you life. You got a nature that chases after the goodness of God. So flee from worldliness. Remember that he's jealous for you. Let's move on to verse 150. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose, for they are far from your law. It's a horrible place to be in, obviously. Those who hate God, they mock his, his law, they mock God, they hate his word. They're chasing after this one who is like, God, save me, give me life. I want to keep your statutes. I want to live better. It's like, I'm doing all this. But yet the people who hate you are like coming near to me. The people who are far from you are near to me to kill me. Where, where, where are you? It's kind of this, this cry. It's like they, they're drawing near. And they, have, uh, they persecute me with evil purposes. They're far from your law. And, and 
Obviously, they're far from, your, from God's law, right? Because evil people run away from God's law. They know their condemnation and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. If, if you're going to continue in evil, you've got to run from God. <laughs> on, on this earth, knowing that uh, you, you can't. But they don't want to come close to the truth. They would rather kill it. They'd rather kill this righteous man. And who is the true righteous man? The Lord Jesus. And what happened? The only true righteous man to ever walk this earth killed. All because the plan of God was that he would die in your place. Man. Verse 151. But here's what he says. They, they do draw near who persecute me. And they're, they're far from your law. But you are near. You are near, O Lord. And all your commandments are true. Trouble is near, but God is nearer. And in a world full of evil, saints, in a world full of lies, of deception, of abuses, of sexuality, of skepticism, of cynicism, of, of total distraction and busyness and neglectfulness of everything good and all truth, in this world, we have truth. We have truth, saints. Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We want to know the truth. It's the everlasting, unchangeable, perfect word of God that brings life to dead souls, to our dead souls, and continues to give us life, continues to correct us. Yeah. And so evil draws near in the world that we live in. And it feels like God isn't near. Because all I feel is, is the temptations that I have. Temptations and the evilness inside my heart feels closer to you than, than, than you do, God. My sin, my distraction, my shame, my guilt, they feel closer. Satan, death feels closer sometimes than, than God does. This is what he's saying. These, these evil people come close to me. And they're far from you. But he says, you're near. All your commandments are true. Notice how the nearness of God is not connected to his circumstances. Notice that the nearness of God is not connected to how he's feeling. If he felt pretty good, he wouldn't be crying out in desperation for God to give life. Right? There, there are clearly times where there's, a, there's kind of a happy cry. I cry out in praise. I cry out in thanksgiving. But this is a begging God that His will would be done. But notice how He finds not the nearness of God in His circumstances or in His feelings, but in God's truth, in His everlasting Word. The psalmist's confidence is that God is near because of what he has said, because of who he is, because of what he has revealed. He found God to be sovereign. He found God to be wise and to be good. All of his commandments are true. Everything you've said, God, is perfect. My circumstances seem this way, sure. My feelings all over the place. So I cry out to you to save me that I might keep your commandments. And I find you to be near because of what you've said, because of who you are faithful and because all things work out for the eternal good of God's children verse 152 continuing these thoughts he says 
Right. Reading 159, but you, you are near, O Lord. All your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you founded them forever. The word of God has taught the psalmist that despite his circumstances and how he might feel or, or what he's doing or what he's not doing, you know, God is near because his testimonies reveal his purposes in all of history. This deepest, this most ultimate created reality. Talking about redemption. Talking about holiness. Talking about sin. Truth. Christ Jesus. The promises of God. They've never altered. Everything God had said in the past that happened. I'm sure the psalmist is looking back to the promises. To the words of God. To the truth of God. How when people were disobedient, judgment came. How when people with, were obedient, it didn't. According to the old covenant, right? So he's looking back and he's seeing that God is immutable. That his plans were settled before the world ever began. That they never altered. That there's no possibility of being alterations to God's testimonies even now. And so although many changes come uh, in, in our world, God's word remains the same. God's word remains the same. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but your word remains forever. The person who builds his life on this will not be shaken. And in Christ Jesus, you are built on the solid rock. How about the, the hymn we sang today? We're, we're coming to a close here. How firm a foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not. This is what he says. Fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will still give you aid. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. Jesus is risen. Our foes are defeated. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. This is what we find in God's word. So let's close here with a meditation on trusting that God is near. Trusting that God is near. Again, there's no indication that uh, they didn't come and kill this guy. We're not given all those details. As we're looking at just these eight verses. There's not much detail about things changed. Nonetheless, he finds God to be near. Nonetheless, he finds God to be near. And it right, might remain dark for you circumstantially. You might feel forgotten. You might feel disappointed for whatever reason. It feels like your enemies seem to be doing better than you are. These feelings are real. But as another hymn says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. We're being transformed by the renewing of our mind, saints. Not our circumstances, not the renewing of our feelings. We do want our feelings to feel better. Sometimes they do. But this is our hope, transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we know the truth. And you will find that God is near. 
Because Romans 8, 28, right? All things are working out for the eternal good of, of the saints. And we have the hope of heaven. You've been saved from sin's penalty. You're being saved from sin's power. And one day you will be saved from sin's presence. A quote there from Alistair Begg. So here's what we do, saints. We're going to trust our wise father. That if he isn't giving us something, at that, that time he knows better. He knows better. He's wise. He's sovereign. And this life is one of the cross. It's one where he's testing our faith, right? As metal is refined by fire. God uses trials to bring us to completeness. And so you continue to pray the will of God as the word testifies that he's faithful, that he's good. And it's on the solid ground that we stand and that we continue in sanctification through the storms of uh, life in this fallen world. And I'll close with the, the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. We have hope. Let's pray.